Welcome to our show, friends. Uh, Greg Hochul here for Stand to Reason. I'm going to start boring. In other words, I'm going to start with some announcements because what happened last hour is I had some things I needed to say last hour and I didn't say them because I got so caught up in my conversation with Frank Turek about CIA coming up in uh, at the end of July. And then I had some fabulous callers and it just totally slipped my mind to let you know, for example, that there's a new STRU out by Mr. B, Tim Barnett, and the title is Our Science and faith compatible. And if you just go to training.str.org, you'll see all our classes there and and that new one will be featured. Uh, Some of you know that um, now my date right now is the 25th. I think you'll be listening to this sometime after the 26th, 27th, 28th. 29th, 30th, 31st, 30 days, April, April, June, on May 1st, which is next week, is our 30th anniversary at Standarisa. 30 years. 30 years. Three decades. It's hard to imagine. More than half of my Christian life. I'll be 50 years in the Lord in September. Pretty amazing to me what God has done. Well, through this next year, we're going to be doing some celebration stuff. We're actually making a documentary about Standarisa. It wasn't my idea. My team did that and they're putting it together and so many great things are happening with that it'd be released probably in the fall sometime we'll keep you posted on that and uh we're gonna also have solid grounds you know how i do solid grounds uh every other month in the alternate months we do mentoring letters but we decided amy i think and some others suggested why don't we take some classic solid grounds from 10 15 20 even 25 years ago and uh recycle them and we looked at six different ones that were really characteristic, I think, of what we stand for at Standard Reason, how we move forward and what we uh, celebrate and, you know, our way of thinking. It's just, it's just, these are really us, classics. And so you'll be seeing that um, through the year. Um, so we're, we're really excited about that and just letting you know. So there'll be more things that you'll hear about that have to do with our 30th anniversary. Um, our reality season is over. We just finished last weekend our final and our sixth reality for the season. In six months, we'll be starting all over again in September in Orange County. Um, I actually think we're not we're we're going to be in uh, actually we'll still be in Orange County, but we'll we'll be at uh, at Biola. I think is where aren't we doing that at Biola? Yeah, Biola is going to be our new location, but in any event, our new season will be starting. But if you missed last season, you can still get it uh, right from the comfort of your own home. And that is if you go uh, to, let's just see it. Uh, You can, if you go to realityapologetics.com forward slash live stream, all right, you'll be able to uh, purchase the live stream of our wonderful event in uh, North Dallas, okay? It was the first one of this year, it was February, and I think virtually all of the breakouts have been recorded as well. So you're going to get all the plenary sessions and the breakouts as well. I just want you to know about that if you missed it. This was a really, I think, a singular um, event for us. Uh, all of the all of the realities and, and before that, the rethinks, they've been great, but every year it seems like 
we find ways to improve on it. And this was an especially good year. And uh, we want you to experience it even if you were not able to go. So go to, uh, let me find that URL again. Go to uh, realityapologetics.com slash live stream, a one word live stream, and uh, check it out. And if you, and it's actually pretty reasonable to be able to purchase the live stream there for a family or whatever. I uh, also want you to know that uh, I am going to be at Christ's Church Federal Way. When you get this in two days, this is in Washington in the Seattle area, Sunday, April 30th at the 9 and 11 a.m. services, Christ's Church, Federal Way, Washington, Sunday, April 30th. I'll be talking about uh, ambassadors, the basic skills. Uh, Robbie Lashua will be April 30th, the same day, at uh, Oasis Church in Phoenix, Arizona, that Sunday. And uh, he's also going to be in El Centro at the Valley Apolo Imperial Valley Apologetics Conference on May 20th. So that's pushing out a few weeks. Tim Barnett will be at Mount Airy Bible Church in Mount Airy, Maryland on Saturday and Sunday, April 29th and 30th. Um, and then he'll be at uh, Calvary Chapel in Olympia, Washington on Wednesday, May 3rd. And uh, speaking at the Unapologetic Conference in Lubbock, Texas on Saturday, May 20. Amy Hall will be doing a live Q&A at SDR's Facebook page on Wednesday, May 3rd. That coming up soon, 1 p.m. You can visit uh, her on Facebook and submit your question there. So a lot of things happening. All the details, I think, are at, uh, is it like str slash events dot events or str.org slash events, something like that. We got a place on our website where you can get all the details for all the. Okay, she always links, Amy always links to it in the podcast notes. Now. I, 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 before I go to my next caller, I want to, which, by the way, my number is 855-243-9975. If you're not listening live through live stream, which you could if you wanted to and see my face, I got to get used to looking at the camera. I'm always looking down at my notes. But um, if you're not listening live, you can call in during our live show, which is 4 to 6 p.m., uh, Los Angeles time. Once again, 855-243-9975. Um, I had a very interesting conversation yesterday as I'm flying back from Asheville, not Nashville, but Asheville, North Carolina, up there in the be beautiful town in the mountains. Very different. Lots of spiritual diversity up there, but I had a great time uh, speaking there at New Life Church. Uh, yesterday or day before yesterday I came back yesterday but I was sitting on the airplane next to a gentleman uh, who I was making small talk with and many of you know about the tactical game plan drawing people out asking questions I am not really aggressive in evangelism it isn't like every person that sits next to me is going to get the gospel during the trip okay that's just not my style but I am available and I to the Lord, and I found that just very simple interactive questions that are very general in an environment like that sometimes lead to a very interesting conversation. And this is one of those conversations I had yesterday on the flight back from Atlanta. 
I went from Asheville to Atlanta, then Atlanta, L.A., four and a half hour flight. And I was, I was working on a new STRU on relativism, which will be being filmed uh, later this week. So I got to get my script all squared away and I'm pulling my notes out. And I'm, I had a long week with a uh, weekend, I should say, with reality in Augusta on Thursday, Friday, Saturday for me, and then going up a three and a half hour drive or three hour drive to Asheville um, Saturday night to teach uh, Saturday, Sunday morning at the church, and then a special session in the evening and a late afternoon, then dinner in the evening with students and stuff. I had a lot of work. And so I'm flying back on Monday uh, with a lot of work still to do, and I'm banging away at it. And he sees me with my notes and he's asking me what I'm doing, essentially. And uh, I, uh, I told him I was putting together a course, and he asked what it was about. I said, relativism, asked if he knew what relativism was. And he goes, well, I know about Einstein. I said, that's relativity, <laughs> a little different. Uh, relativism is an understanding of truth. And uh, it was, it's just very interesting when you start talking with people, especially that are interested in conversing a little bit. And, um, and, and he, he immediately began actually asking me questions or making statements that I could ask him questions about in a very relaxed environment. That's the value of the tactical game plan, okay? And using questions like, what do you mean by that? Or if they're putting, uh, making a point, how did you come to that conclusion or something like that? But you don't use them in a wooden way. You're having a conversation. They're just in your hip pocket when you need them. And I did need them at a couple points here, along with a couple of other, um, a couple of other tactics that I employed during the conversation. Now we weren't talking. I did a lot of work, but we were talking as I'm setting up and doing some stuff. And he's asking questions. And now he was about, I would say, in his late fifties, maybe early sixties, and um, uh, and he he. he when I mentioned about what relativism is, it's about truth. Well, what is truth, you know? And uh, how could anybody know absolute truth? or something to that effect. And so I, I looked at his shirt, and I said, what if I said to you, your shirt is unbuttoned at the collar, but buttoned all the way down? What would you, would you agree with that? He, he looked at his own shirt, and he said, yes. And I said, would you think that that statement was true? He said, yes. He said, well, now you know what the word truth means because you just used it. In other words, truth is a fact. If I make a statement that's accurate, then it's a statement that's a fact, and it's a statement that is true. You know, it's interesting how people use these notions all the time, and they're very comfortable with them, but they've never been reflective on them, and we have to reflect on them, then they start to get skeptical about things. And he said, well, how do you know? Yeah, but how do you know truth? Notice he's asking me the questions. So I'm responding with a question to make a point. Now, I'm making a point with my questions. That's Columbo number three. But I am trying to get his cooperation by using the questions to get him to make statements that I could use to advance my point, which is it ter turns out to be non-controversial. Okay. And, uh, for example, when, when, how do you know what's true? I said, wait a minute. Did you, I said, just simply, did you have breakfast this morning? He said, yes. I said, how do you know that? Well, I was there. Right. And you recall or remember what you had for breakfast 
because you were the one that was there at breakfast time. So one way we know things is by memory and having been there. Okay, there you go. I said, do you know what you're thinking right now? Yes. How do you know that? You don't know that by your five senses. You know that because you introspect. You have direct awareness of your own thoughts. That's another way of knowing something. Uh, he, he, he was involved in chemistry. I said, you might use, you know, in science, your five senses to determine things about the chemical matter of things. And by the way, you determine those H2O, right? Is that true? That water is two hydrogens and an oxygen? That's true. So not only is there truth, you have a means to know that there's truth. And we have lots of different means to know that there's truth. What if I said to you, and this is all part of the conversation, notice I'm just walking him through with a couple casual questions that keep him involved in the conversation. What if I said to you that uh, my brother was an only child? He said, well, he, of course he got it. That would be false. Now, how do you know that's false? That's because there's a contradiction in the language that I'm using. I'm using language that, uh, that, that entails certain things that I am contradicting with my words. <laughs> so there are some rational categories in play there. The notion of brother entails a sibling, and so if I say I'm the sibling, I'm so, if he's my brother, then I have to be a sibling. He can't be an only child. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. So we have yet another means. Now, I am not trying to convince him of any theological thing. But he is already starting to push back a little bit with me on the issue of knowledge of truth, because I've told him that we do these conferences to help Christians defend the truth of Christianity. And now there's this skepticism coming back in his questions. What am I doing? I'm asking him questions and getting answers that help him to see that he already knows there are ways to answer questions about a whole raft of things such that, such that he can come to the truth on certain matters in a fairly reliable way. Okay, I'm trying to, in a certain sense, tone down some maybe knee-jerk reaction skepticism about spiritual things that uh, he might be having. And I kind of saw that coming a little bit, so I'm relaxed. I'm asking questions. Very early on in the conversation, I asked him what his name was, and now I'm using his name. I don't want to say it on the air because um, he may be listening, and I just want to protect his privacy. Now, the fact, how would he be listening? Because when I mentioned the conferences that uh, we give, he actually asked me, well, who, well, he meant, I said, I mentioned the conferences, and he said, well, who sponsors that? And I, I said, we do. Who are you? We're Stand to Reason. And then I had my cell phone there, so I uh, opened up our app, which I have and don't actually hardly ever use, but I have no need to use it. But in the app, there it was, Stand to Reason, str.org, right there in the, uh, the homepage of the app. So I remember I'm kind of working, we're talking a little bit, and I'm going back to my work, and a couple of seconds, maybe two or three minutes later, as I'm working with my own stuff, I look over, and his computer's open. He is at our website. That has never happened before to me, that someone I'm talking to right there on the plane goes right away to our website, and he's reading some of our stuff. Well, that's good. 
I'm glad he's got our URL now in his computer. He's checking it out. Again, I know almost nothing about this man, except for his first name and that he is involved in some chemistry profession. And uh, I made reference to that at one point, just as I'm talking to him, um, using illustrations that are germane to what he does for a living, and that makes it easier to converse with him. Okay. And he's reading our statement of values, and one of the values has to do with the church, and the church is the body of Christ, the regenerate people that God has saved, etc., etc., something like that in our values. And then he says, which church? He asks me. Notice it's interesting, he is asking me clarification questions, which is Colombo number one, which is fine. And so I said, well, the church, uh, we're getting our definition of the church from the New Testament. And he says, which New Testament? Now I know something is going on, because um, he is asking questions in a way that it, where, where it just suggests to me that there are, there's something skeptical going on with him. And so now my guard is up a little bit. Okay, now I'm going to be a little more careful, because he's not just asking questions to get general information when he says, yeah, but which New Testament? Oh, okay, hmm. What do I do now? I could say, well, the New Testament, the real New Testament, the New Testament that was inspired by, I can go all that way, which would then generate, I thought, more challenges, since now I realize that hmm, there's something underneath some of these questions. That was my sense. And so I moved right into my tactical mode. And when he says, which New Testament, then I said, what do you mean? Okay, I tossed the ball right back to his court, in his court, with a Colombo number one, what do you mean by that? Question, so I can get more clarification. I'm not sure where this is going, right? I want to have a sense of where I'm at, what the lay of the land is. What do you mean? Well, there's the King James Bible, and there's the Catholic Bible, and there's other Bibles, etc. And so, okay, well, the King James Bible is the New Testament in English from 300 years ago. That's all. It's just an older translation of the same New Testament. They're all the same Bible. What I said. No, they're not. The Catholic Bible has books the Protestant Bible doesn't have. Now I've got a new wrinkle here. Now there's a statement about the Catholic Bible, and it's starting to occur to me that maybe this man is a Roman Catholic and somewhat doctrinaire about it. In other words, going, setting himself up against maybe a Protestant and wants to make the case for Roman Catholicism, at least one way or another, or at least plant the flag. And so I just asked him, are you Roman Catholic? He said, yes, okay. So now there's not gravity there, but it, in, for me, this was really important information. Let me just underscore for you as listeners, and some of you may be listeners who are listening for the first time because of last weekend's conference, uh, reality conference, or because you were at New Life Church where I taught on this quite extensively. What am I doing? I'm just using my game plan and what I'm and this allows me to get a lay of the land and then it helps me to know how to maneuver and avoid pitfalls or maybe avoid minefields I don't want an argument I don't want to fight I don't want to have a, a, a discussion about um, 
which Bible's the real Bible, the Roman Catholic Bible or the or the the Protestant Bible. There aren't they aren't two separate Bibles. There is a small distinction I'll get to in a moment, but I don't want to get in a Protestant versus Catholicism. I don't want to get in a fight that he might be setting up and laying uh you know, digging the trenches right now for. Though he's very nice, very polite. Okay, even so. Um I, I that will not be productive. There may be something I can do. But but put a stone in his shoe or something like that. But I don't want to inflame the environment with this internecine battle between Protestantism and Catholicism. Okay, so I have to be very careful what's going on beneath the surface. So I'm gathering this vital information, and it turns out, and I know this because of another site that he brought up, that he was a member of the Knights of Columbus. And in fact, from the website he brought up, there was this picture. I said, hey, there you are. And he's some kind of official in the Knights of Columbus. So he's a Knights of Columbus is a Catholic order that it turns out my grandfather on my father's side was a member of. I remember seeing a picture with my grandfather with the Knights of Columbus. And I never knew my grandfather. My dad was orphaned when he was 10 years old. But the Knights of Columbus is a very conservative, Vatican I-style Roman Catholic group. They've been around for a long time. Okay, now I'm, I know I'm dealing with somebody who's died in the wool, Roman Catholic. Okay, and so I'm not going to head-to-head with him. Even if I have productive things to say, they're not going to be well-received. Okay, I've got to make my headway in some other way. All right. So now we're talking about the New Testament. Which New Testament? Okay. Which Bible? Okay. And so I, I mentioned him, well, the Old Testament is the Hebrew Scriptures. He said, well, yeah, you have the five books of Moses. Oh, yeah, more than that. You have the Tanakh, you've got the, 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 the Torah, and you have the prophets, and you have the wisdom literature, etc., etc. You know, so I said, there you have that. Then you have the New Testament. Then you have a bunch of books that were written in the intertestamental period. Now, I'm just explaining these details to him. And these, uh, uh, from these books, the Roman Catholic Church have chosen a number of them to canonize as Scripture in the 16th century at the Council of Trent. That's when they were canonized. Now, they were respected and read by lots of Christians before that, but they were not officially part of Scripture until Rome canonized them in the 16th century. They were never consistently accepted. But the point is, you've got three groups of books. You've got the Old Testament, you've got the New Testament, you've got the Apocrypha, okay? So the New Testament, I pointed out to him, for Roman Catholics and Protestants is exactly the same. Same documents, same books, it's all the same. So I'm just trying to put this in perspective because I don't want to get in a fight about the Apocrypha. We, I, if we're going to talk about the New Testament, let's just talk about the New Testament. And that is the source for the word understanding of the word church that we used in our value statement, going back to his original question. And uh, the New Testament, though, is the same for all Christians. So, and part of what I was doing is I was clarifying some of the facts. Uh, by the way, that's just the facts, ma'am. Tactic right? You got some of your facts, you're not quite clear on some of these things. 
part of what I was doing was narrowing the field of the discussion. I, I, I didn't want to go all over the place. Last show, some of you heard my conversation with Johnny, who said, what is the historical evidence for Jesus? In that conversation, we ended up, well, he ended up taking the conversation or attempting to in a couple of different directions that was unrelated to that. And I kept pulling him back gently and saying, well, here's our original question. Let's just stay on that and the historical documentation of the life of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I want to stay focused in some of these conversations, and that's what I was doing in this this case. So I want to be, clarify the facts and narrow the field of discussion, the New Testament here and the meaning of the word church. But I was also trying, in a sense, and I'll be honest with you here, subtly communicate to him that I knew a few things about these matters, all right? And that it, by communicating that, he, maybe he would be more careful with his claims and not just kind of throw these things out, which weren't actually precise. And uh, uh, then I'd have to, well, not quite, you know, I'd have to correct him on that. We ended up talking about a number of other things, but my goal there was to have a pleasant conversation and not get pulled into an internecine battle between two Christian denominations, and uh, and then create a lot of hostility. So now he's bugged at some guy who's part of a Christian, a Protestant Christian organization. He's got our website on his computer. He may end up going back to that and reading some other things and finding some things that he finds useful there. I didn't want to uh, poison the well. I didn't want to bruise the fruit, however you want to characterize it. I wanted to leave behind a fragrant aroma. And I think that is what ended up happening. And uh, stayed in friendly terms, and I affirmed his view at every point I could with integrity. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's a good point. And uh, establish common ground insofar as possible, correct some misconceptions he might have about the Bible and about translations, and uh, and then, you know, fortunately, he's got our website. There might be something he'll find there. No harm, no foul. Okay, do no, <laughs> do no damage, kind of thing. And sometimes that's the best you could do in circumstances. But always there was my tactical game plan in play. All right, uh, let's go take a break here, and we'll come back. Andrew's on board. We'll get him. We missed him last hour, but uh, he's ready to go now. So I'm Greg Kokel here for Standard Reason. Stay with us. Have you seen our brand-new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Standard Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with the confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. 
If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. All right, let's go to Andrew in Houston. Houston and Andrew, are you there? Yes, sir, I oh, am. Can we you missed hear me? you. Yeah, I can hear you fine. Were, were you actually on and I couldn't hear you, or were you somewhere else, like on, on hold or something? I, I was here. I couldn't hear you. Could you hear me? I couldn't then. No, I heard <laughs> sounds of silence. That's what I heard. But I can okay. hear you good now. So, uh, what's on? Well, that would be an adjective. So, I could hear you well. Use the adverb. Amy's, you know, she's chuckling. She, she caught me. She wasn't going to give me a hard time there. Okay, Andrew, I can hear you well. What's on your mind? Can I give you my question and then 30 seconds of my story that's making me wonder about it? Okay. And I'm just wondering if uh, God gives us our passions for basically the first 25 years of my life. My passion is learning about military history, especially World War II. That was and your passion, 20- did you say? That was your passion? Uh-huh. Okay. In 2014, I had three parts of my brain removed during epileptic brain surgery. Hmm. My seizures have improved, but after surgery, my passion changed. Hmm. Now I love learning about Christian philosophy and apologetics. Okay. I love you, Frank Turek, Dr. William Lane Craig. Uh-huh. Oh, God bless you all. <laughs> Thank you. Well, so, uh, it sounds like uh, your surgery had a salutary effect on your desires. I mean, nothing wrong with World War II history. Mm-hmm. I'm, I am very interested in that myself, and I've read mm-hmm. many books about uh, World War II, uh, the broad-based books about what happened and individual battles and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. I'm sympathetic to that. But your question, though, is um, is about passions, and it looks sounds like your passion changed because of a a medical problem and surgery mm-hmm. that redirected um, your interests. Is that right? And you mm-hmm. want to know if God was involved with that? Basically. Well, I have a pretty robust understanding, a re- pretty robust commitment to the sovereignty of God. And so I see, I would, I would affirm God's sovereign hand in that. That is, something difficult befell you, but something really good came out of it. Your interests changed. Now, I don't know if God, in a sense, kind of waved the wand over you many years ago to cause you to be really interested in World War II military history, and then waved another wand later after your surgery to now make you interested in Christian philosophy and apologetics. I, I, my temptation is to think of that more naturalistic terms, that you have a background and a, in a, 
and a maybe inclination uh, or whatever for certain things because of who knows the hum- the person you are and that you grew up to be and everything that drives your interest in one way. This is like a lot mm-hmm. of people, you know, your interest could have been in quilting for goodness sake, and that was just whatever. Yeah. It's incidental. Um, not, but I'm not saying God is not sovereign over that, but I'm just, this is one of those incidental kinds of things, right? And then something happened, and now your interests are in a different direction. Um, it's interesting that the direction that they're in is Christian philosophy and apologetics. And, and boy, well, that's, that's cool, because that brings something to you, I think, that is a, is a much has has a that's more rich or um, helpful than mm-hmm. World War II history. Not to diss the history mm-hmm. part, but this is just better. And so I'm inclined to see God's sovereign hand in that. Not entirely knowing how that eventuated in your life, but I still can see God's hand in that directing you. I mean, a lot of people will will could probably testify to events that were pretty bizarre, weird, tragic in their life, that when they came out of it, pointed them right to the Lord, and I see God's hand in that as well. So I don't have any reason mm-hmm. not to see that in this this new development in the same way. Does that make sense to you? Well, I can see that too. Some, you know, rough times you go through, and then you're like, yeah, God allowed me to have this to humble me, to draw me to Him. Uh-huh. Do you feel like, um, as a result of that um, epilepsy and the surgeries or whatever that you had, that then it eventuated in this new interest, um, did that cause you to, to become a Christian, or was were you a Christian before that when you were really interested in World War II history? No, I was a Christian before that. Okay, but that focused you, focused you much more strongly— on apologetics and Christian philosophy, is that right? Correct. Okay. Well, I mean that—that's good news, as far as I could tell. And uh, mm-hmm. I would—I'm very comfortable to say that God's hand was in it. All right. I don't know how we accomplished that. That's hard to tell. But uh, God does all kinds of unusual things to bring us to better places than we had been before. And it sounds to me that's where you're at. A better place than you had been before. I guess what got me started thinking about this was what one of the Avalon songs, You Put the Passion Deep in My Soul. Mm. And maybe that's where this question's coming from, partly too. Well, I don't think you would have a passion for God or anything about God unless God had worked in a deliberate and determinative way to accomplish that. That's a big part of my own theology. On our own, by ourselves, we're we're not moving toward God, but away from God. God's got to put the—our passion is for ourselves, and uh, our, yeah. our, he got it, right? And for yeah. our flesh, the world, the flesh, and the devil kind of uh, thing. Now, that doesn't mean our passion is for the devil. His passion is for us and messing us up. But our yeah. flesh mm-hmm. is very self-centered, and uh, the world is enticing. And so our natural state as a fallen human being is to be manipulated by the devil mm-hmm. on behalf of the mm-hmm. flesh and the world. And God rescues us from that. 
and mm-hmm. uh, and then gives us a new passion that we would not have had if he hadn't worked in our life. Yeah, but praise God for that. Yeah, Thank I, God for his grace. Yes, sir. I agree. I agree entirely. <laughs> Is there anything else I can help you with? No, sir. All right. Well, that was worth the wait, at least for me. Yes, sir. Hope it was for you, too. Okay. Hey, thanks, thanks so much for your call, me. Andrew. Call anytime mm-hmm. you want. All right. God All right. bless you. Thank you. You, too. That was great chatting with Andrew. I'm glad we got him back. Um, I guess we just must have had a, a, a technical problem, huh? We uh, uh, Let's see. We've got uh, some open mic calls here. Open mic calls are when uh, you call in on our open mic and uh, that is uh, a place you can go on our website. You go to our homepage and under podcasts and live broadcasts, yeah, you, you'll be able to follow the, the prompts there, and you can actually verbally leave a question if you like, or you can simply call 857-DIAL-STR or 857-342-5787 and follow those prompts and leave your question. And uh, I'm looking at the long list of those that we have here, and here's one from Coram Deo 517. I like Coram Deo. I like that. That means, in, I think, in the presence of God, Coram Deo. And uh, do we have that one handy? Uh, he want, It's a question about Matthew 25. I don't know if it's the gal or guy. We got it. Okay, let's hear from Coram Deo on the question that person has. Hey, Greg, this is Sheen from Temecula, California. Hmm, okay. So my question is about how Jesus said little about helping the poor and oppressed. And I do agree that that was definitely not his mission, for the kingdom of God is certainly bigger than just our temporary circumstances while we're on this earth. And I even read your article on the legend of the social justice Jesus, hmm. and I agree with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I came across Matthew 25, 31 through 46, And, you know, even though I've read this many times over the years, this time I did notice that it's about salvation. Mm -hmm. And it sure seems to be tied to how we treat the poor and oppressed. Mm -hmm. Um, I know from you to never take anything out of context uh, by reading a verse or two. So I did go over and over it. Mm -hmm. um, And it sure seems like we're going to be separated into sheep and goats based on what we did for the, quote, least of these. Mm -hmm. Now, I also noticed that this was not addressed in your article, The Legend of the Social Justice Jesus. So what is your take on this passage yeah. on Jesus's final judgment? Uh-huh. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, what a great question. Um, I didn't catch your first name. It's just Coram Dale here on my list here. But uh, it's a great question. I'm very happy to address it. And I did not deal with it in that article about The Legend of the Social Justice Jesus because I had already... <laughs> written enough on that issue. Uh, My word count was just, I was at my limit. And one thing that's very interesting that you probably don't know is Keith Green, the late, great Keith Green, he died in 1982 when I was still in, when I was in Thailand. But uh, I, I was, I've I've met him a a number of times during the Jesus movement and uh, seen him perform, actually once even before he was a Christian ironically, and uh, he did a big giant event called Jesus Northwest 78, and he keyed on this passage, and he made the point, just like you're making, that a straight-ahead read on the passage 
indicates salvation seems to hinge on what the Christian did or did not do. And that's like right out of my memory banks, Keith Green saying that, because I listened to that concert a number of times and very powerful, and it troubled me. But you have to still deal with it. Troubled me that this was the emphasis, seems like a works emphasis. And, and, and of course, Cormdale, you know, that's not the doc, that's not the gospel, but it does raise a question about the meaning here of Jesus' um, parable. So I, I want to go back to this parable. And reading the parable over and over again is not going to solve the problem for you, probably, because. Um, uh, there's a little detail that is um, overlooked by a lot of people that was pointed out to me actually many, many years ago um, in the late 70s that, no, I make that in the, in the mid-70s, that, that changed my uh, understanding of what's going on here, okay? And you, you, you mentioned a phrase here, how we deal with the least of these, okay? Uh, but there's more to that phrase I want to focus in on, all right? Now, let me, let me pull back and make a general comment about these kinds of uh, representations. Um, when Scripture talks about people's salvation being somehow—this is a very broad word here now—somehow connected to behavior, okay? Um, I use James chapter 2 as a paradigm case. In James chapter 2, James says, faith without works is dead. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. <clears throat> now, what's important about that passage is that the focus of James is faith. And he's making a distinction between two types of faith, quote-unquote, two types of faith declaration. And he's saying there are faith declarations with no works, and there are faith declarations with works. And when he says, you, you say you have faith in a works, he says, can that faith save you? In other words, in that kind of faith, can the faith that is a declaration that has no manifestations in behavior, can that be the kind of faith that is actually a saving faith? And he says, no. The kind of faith that is a saving faith is a faith that manifests itself in behavior, okay? And uh, so, so um, maybe another way to put it is, the kind of faith that is a real faith is the faith that is going to produce certain types of works. So there's a general paradigm to use when going to a number of passages that seem to tie salvation to works in a New Testament context. Because we know in very, very clear statements, like in Romans chapter 4, Paul contrasts 
works to faith. And Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man boast. Now he says in the next verse, you are created for good works, but it's not the works that save you. It is the consequence of the salvation. We see in the same thing in Titus chapter 3. When the kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not according to works that we have done in righteousness, but according to the washing, but according, I think it says, to faith. The I don't have it in front of me, I'm just kind of going from memory, but you get the sense of it. By the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, which He poured out on us lavishly. And I want you to be confident of these things, Paul says there in Titus 3, so that those who have been saved by Christ can be careful to engage in good works. So there's the relationship once again. And then we see famously in Romans 4, uh, for him who works, his reward is reckoned as what is due. You earn it, you got to come into you, God's got to pay you because you earned it. Okay, but for him, who does not work? That's the way Paul puts it. But for him who does not work, but believes in a God, uh, oh, now I got to go to it because I'm, uh, but believes in God who, who justifies the ungodly. There it is. Who justifies the ungodly? To him, it is reckoned or counted to his account as righteousness. So there we have a number of passages that very powerfully and clearly indicate that works come as a result of a faith that is true that saves you. Whether it's James 2, or whether it's uh, Romans chapter 4, or whether it's Ephesians chapter 2, or Titus chapter 3, they all say the same thing in unequivocal terms. Okay, um, so this is the paradigm or the motif that we need to come to Matthew 25 with, to be able to avoid a sense of contradiction. Um, this must be stated by Jesus as an indicative. The true Christian will show himself to be a true Christian by these kinds of behaviors. And therefore, the behaviors become the means by which we divide sheep from goats, those that have the faith and true faith, and those who don't. It will be manifest in behaviors, okay? So, in a broad sense, I can reconcile this apparent appeal to works as the criterion for salvation, as indicative of people who are genuinely saved by faith, because that's what is stated in all these other passages. And I could go through the Gospels and find references like this as well, not just the Pauline texts, which I have done. Okay, but there's another detail here, because that makes it sound like people who work with the poor and do prison and stuff like that, these people are going to be justified by their works apart from faith in Christ, because they are actually serving Christ by doing this work. And this is where we have to come down to that phrase, to the least, 
to the least of these. Okay, and now I've got to find it here, and that would be uh, the least of these because I'm I'm looking for the uh, here I'm talking away and I haven't looked at the passage. Um, um, verse 45, it says, Then he will answer, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Um, but I, I'm looking for the reference before that. When did we see you hungry and naked came to me? Uh, thirsty give you when he said, in prison, come the king will say, okay, here it is. This is the, remember he makes these statements twice. He, he, he commends some and he, and he rejects others based on the criterion that we're talking about here. And in verse 40, we have the first statement. The king will answer, and he will say, Remember, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will say, when? Verse 37. And the king says, verse 40, Truly I say to you, listen, by the way, listen carefully to the words here. To the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Now, verse 45, he doesn't repeat the referred word brothers, but he's already established who he's talking about, his frame of reference, and verse 40. Okay, so he's talking about these brothers of mine. What's the key here? Brothers. That's the key. Jesus is talking about behavior that he's described that is done towards brothers of his. Oh, what's that? Now, of course, it is very easy in a, in a superficial reading to kind of read into this passage the brotherhood of man. Yes, we're all in the same human family. We are all brothers. Jesus has all these brothers and sisters, we would add, you know, that, that are all human beings that need to be cared for. But there is no doctrine of the brotherhood of man in Scripture, generally speaking. Now, there is one reference when uh, Paul is speaking at Areopagus, one reference that I know of, that that says that from from uh, that 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 God is responsible for, you know, we are all His offspring. We are all His offspring, okay. And He's giving this lecture or this talk before those in in, uh, in the Areopagus there in Athens. His message regarding an unknown God, what you worship in ignorance. This I proclaim to you: God made the whole world. And uh, he doesn't need a place to, to stay. He doesn't need a temple. He's not made out of physical things. Um, and we are, in him we move and live and exist. And uh, even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. So being then the children of God quoting these other poets, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like 
gold, a silver, a stone, an image formed by the art. So here's a reference, and I just realized now he's actually quoting the Epicurean uh, philosophers. They say, this is your guy, that we are all children of God. Well, if we're all kind of like children of God, well, then, then God is not something made of stone. This is kind of his argument. Acts chapter 17. That's, there's a reference where I guess you could understand him to be talking about the brotherhood of man, so to speak. But this is not a theme in Scripture. All human beings are in the brotherhood of man, and God is looking for us to care for all human beings. This certainly isn't in Jesus, because Jesus is using the word, these brethren of mine. So here's the question. From Jesus' perspective, who are his brethren? Well, there's two choices, it seems to me. Um, one of them are the Jews. That is, he is a Jew, and, you know, Paul refers to, you know, I bear them witness, my brethren, I have a deep desire in my heart that my brethren, my Jewish brethren, would turn to Christ. What is that, Romans 7 or something in there, you know, or 9, maybe. But uh, I'd even give up my own salvation that my brothers, that is, uh, ethnically brethren, religiously brethren, that is, Jews, would be saved. So it certainly makes sense that the brothers or brethren of Jesus would be Jews. It also makes sense that the brethren of Jesus are the followers of Jesus, because when his own family came to collect him, concerned that Jesus had uh, gone a little nutty, they came to get him, your mother and your brothers and sisters are here for you. And Jesus says, who is my mother, brothers, and sister? Who are my brethren? Who is my family? Those who do the will of God. That's who my family are, and that's what he identifies. Um, and so, when and, and there are probably more references you can find, but those are that's a fairly key one. You look at John chapter one, um, that he came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. So we could talk about the brethren of Jesus being other Jews, but, you know, New Testament theology, it tightens this down a little bit. First John chapter 1 there, I'm sorry, not First John, but the Gospel of John chapter 1, that it, the, the children of God, those who are in relationship with the Father, are not humanity, but those who are rescued by His Son through faith in His Son, and we are now the children of God. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. That's in 1 John chapter 3, I think, uh, and the first verse. So note, notice this language that this, this family of God is not the world, is not the brotherhood of man, but it is this either in one case, depending on the Jews, or it is God's own church, who are Jesus' brothers. So what does that mean? 
that means that whatever's going on here in Matthew 25 is an identification of a group of people that are acting in a particular way because they are Jesus, uh, uh, are, are Jesus, well, let me back up a bit. He's saying that those people that are doing these things are doing these things to Jesus' brethren. Now, who is most likely, if brethren are Christians or Jews, who is most likely to do all these things on behalf of Christians and Jews in particular? That's who Jesus is addressing, his brethren. These brothers of mine. Probably other believers. So the ones who are most likely to evidence their faith in Jesus by taking care of others who have faith in Jesus um, are real Christians. Or I guess I could say it a little different. The ones most likely to do the kinds of things to real Christians that Jesus is commending here are other Christians. Could be wrong on that. But that's my take. And I don't think it's a bad one. It is the brethren, after all. And there's no brotherhood of man, really, in Jesus' theology, as far as I could find. Anyway, there you go. Uh, Coramdeo, thank you for that call. Glad to be able to respond to it. Hope it helps. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give him heaven. Bye-bye now.